I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. The, one of the reasons that we work so well, I think, is because I'm the scientist and he's the physician, and both of those subjects are really, really important for the development of drugs. You've got to have the scientific rationale for what you're doing, and then also the medical rationale because you're putting this in the people. So I think that's one of the reasons that partnership works really well. The other reason is, you know, when you work with somebody long enough, you develop, you know, communication styles, the respect, and so on and so forth that you need to to be able to go. And the other thing is, it just very complementary skill set. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so this is a very first that I can remember out of about 300 podcast episodes. We just had, I think, our first PhD on the podcast, and I didn't know, and I'll bet you don't know, what PhD stands for. So it's an acronym for something. I'd like you to write down before you listen to the podcast and before our guest reveals it, what do you think PhD stands for? So Raquel Azumi is the uh, second in command, the COO for Vincerex, which is a pharmaceutical biotech company. They are a publicly traded company. They've had to go through some crazy growth, took the company public about two years ago, had to go through a reduction in force when the stock market crashed as well. She's also done three companies with her CEO. So they've been in this kind of CEO, COO role three different times. She's going to talk about what she's done in all of her careers and learning business coming out of the science. Um, kind of field and the biotech field and how she said to learn all of the leadership uh, to actually be a CEO of a great company. So yeah, I think you'll enjoy the episode. Great energy, great insights, and you'll finally learn and don't Google it what PhD stands for. So Raquel, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning from you, looking forward to learning a little bit more about the company as well. And by the way, is it Vincerex? How do you pronounce Vincerex Pharma? Vincerex. Vincerex, okay. So before we dive in, I want to know about Vincerex Pharma and, and certainly your role as a CEO and everything else. But I need to ask you, I saw a PhD beside your name, and I can't think of in the first 300 guests if we've had any PhDs on the podcast, maybe one or two, but... What the heck does PhD stand for? Yeah, interesting. Very few people have ever asked me that. It actually stands for a doctorate in philosophy. So regardless what you get your PhD in, it's a doctorate in philosophy. It's it's basically the highest academic degree that you can get. Yes. So if you're if you've got like your PhD in economics or your PhD in mathematics or whatever, it's still a doctorate of philosophy. Yes, in that subject. 
in that subject. That's super cool. It's like, I I've never known. I mean, I could never spell PhD when I was in college. I was like, <laughs> I was definitely not the smart student and there's no way I could write a PhD thesis because my essays were like as short as I could get them to be and usually paying someone to write them for me. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we used to joke in graduate school that it just stood for piled higher and deeper. So <laughs> sitting context. <laughs> that works as well. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, it did for all of us too. Mine was pile higher and deeper to try to get a C minus average as well. <laughs> so tell us about Vincerex. What's the brand do? What do you focus on day to day? So we're a biotech company that's focused on next generation bioconjugation. So we have some really elegant science behind this that our chief scientific officer and our chief development officer have been working on for decades. The bioconjugation, and since I think you have a lot of different listeners, that's just the the act of where we're taking a very potent anti-cancer molecule and we're linking it to something that's going to target it directly to the tumor cells. So we're an oncology company. We're here to hopefully cure cancer. And our platform is designed to try to just hit the target cells, which are the cancer cells, and reduce off-target effects. So we're trying to reduce side effects to the healthy tissue. We've got a small molecule drug conjugates. So that targeting agent is considered a small molecule, and that's for solid tumors. And then we have what's called antibody drug conjugates. And that's where you have a big antibody that's designed specifically for something that's expressed on the surface of the cell, the tumor cell, to take that very potent anti-cancer agent directly to the tumor cell where it gets internalized, and then it's released inside the tumor cell to kill the cell from inside out, basically. And then that the potent chemistry that we have to kill that tumor cell is designed in a way that even if it gets released, let's say the tumor cell dies, and now you might have some of this anti-cancer drug floating around, it can't get into the healthy tissue. So there's been quite a lot of movement in the antibody drug conjugate space. There's been several approvals that a lot of patients are benefiting from, but we still see a lot of toxicities with these agents. So the promise was that we were going to have better efficacy and less toxicity, and that's what we feel our next generation uh, ADCs are going to deliver on. This is crazy. All right. So one of the cool things I think about your business is that you have core purpose deeply built into the day-to-day. I mean, it's literally like helping to solve or cure cancer. You can't kind of get to a core purpose that's much bigger than that, where, you know, if you're a, oh, I built a junk removal business, like 1-800-GOT-JUNK, it's hard to get people excited about hauling junk, right? So we had to kind of invent something in a way to get people excited. Is that one of the reasons why it's easy to attract, or maybe I'm assuming, but is it easy to attract smart people to come and work for you because the core purpose of the day-to-day is so strong? Absolutely. The people that work in this business are extremely passionate about what we do. Mm. Uh, The thing about cancer, it's not a question of if it's going to touch your life, it's a question of when, especially the longer we live because cancer is usually brought on by longer living. That's just a fact of life. And so everybody that I've ever worked with has a real passion for what we do. And we're very fortunate. Uh, This is my second company that I've founded. And I've worked in this industry for over 20 years that I've had people that have gone from company to company to company and are still with me today because we have that shared vision. We have that shared passion. And we're very, and it's, and it's humbling to have these folks still working with me after all these years. Why do you think they follow you from company to company? One is because we have a shared vision and passion. Mm. And two, I think it's, it's respect and it's leadership. It's, 
it's a great industry to be in, but you still have to have that leadership quality that inspires people and wants to make people work with you. I like to lead by example. So one of the things that I've, anybody who's ever worked with knows this for a fact, I would never ask of others what I'm not willing to do for myself. And that's a fact. In fact, I've been a clinical trial participant. I've been participating in clinical trials since I started at my career at Amgen many, many years ago. And the, the last one that I participated in was the phase three COVID vaccine trial. So everybody who works with me knows that I'm passionate about what I do and I'm willing to participate in all aspects of it. But I think from the science perspective, the medical perspective, it's obvious that it's going to attract really smart, great people. But even from like, if you're in marketing or you're in finance or you're in operations roles, the fact that you can work as a payroll clerk for a company helping to solve cancer, that's just freaking cool. It's huge. And that's one of the things that I tell anybody I've ever worked with is drug development is not a, is it absolutely a team sport. It is not one person who gets a drug approved. It is everybody. And honestly, I've told people, many people have heard me say this. It's like, it doesn't matter to me if you're the ones, you know, cleaning, you know, the janitorial service, everything that we do is important. Everybody's contributing and it takes all of us working together to get that drug across the finish line and on the shelf so that doctors can prescribe it to patients. So, so that kind of touches the question that I've always been curious about. And it feels like it must be so hard to be in a company like this, where it's almost like you're chasing to the, get to the end of the rainbow. You know, when we were five-year-olds, we're on our bicycle and we're going to get to the end of that darn rainbow and you never get there. So often in pharma, in, in this kind of space, we're trying to find that cure. We're trying to find that thing. And it could be like a 10-year thing where we just keep trying to get to the end of the rainbow. How do you keep people excited and engaged and optimistic and trying where we're not quite there yet? That's an excellent question. I actually feel very fortunate. I've been responsible for help, you know, being part of the team that got two very important drugs approved, which are Ibrutinib and Calibrutinib. And it's true exactly what you said. I'd been working for a while before. I've had the opportunity to work on ibrutinib. And once I started working on ibrutinib and saw the promise, the early promise of that drug, all I could say was I've, worked, I've been waiting my whole life to work on a drug like this. And I think once you've worked on really good drugs like that, you, you start to really understand what are the minimum thresholds for drugs in order to, to hopefully work on that next blockbuster. And that really feeds into the story of Vincere. So after it, so Ibrutinib is a drug that uh, Dr. Ahmed Hamdi and I worked to help develop and get to patients. We then co-founded a company called Acerta around another very similar class of drug, which is a Calibrutinib. And that drug also did amazing. And because it did so well, it got sold. And so we were in a position where we were looking to see what was going to happen next. And Ahmed came to me one afternoon and said, you know, we, we just have to start a new company. We didn't quite achieve the vision that we had aspired to with Acerta. And that's because we, we were hoping that Acerta would have a pipeline that we could develop internally and continue to produce drugs that were going to help patients. Um, but the first drug was so good that it got snapped up. And that's kind of what happens in our industry. And my comment to him was, well, we really have a problem because, you know, first we worked on Ibrutinib. Then we worked on a, a calibrutinib, absolutely paradigm shifting drugs that are make, you know, saving lives every day. I said, whatever I do next has to be at that same level because there's no way I'm leaving this industry on a dot. That's just not going to happen. And so I said, it's like winning three gold medals. And you know, that's not easy to do. 
And he's he absolutely agreed with me. I couldn't agree more. So it took a while for us to spend a lot. I mean, we kissed a lot of frogs before we found a technology that yeah. we were built. We were willing to build another company around. It really does take a long time to get to the night before you're the overnight success it, story too, right? Regardless, <laughs> Exactly. Of we're definitely putting in the time before the successes came. Yeah. How are you funded? So um, we actually went public through a SPAC. Okay. When did you do that? So we did that, well, we're two years old. So the end of 2021. What's that process like? So that I was brand new to that process. And um, it was a little hair raising because it was, SPACs are still pretty new and they were, they were new then, <laughs> but it was exciting too. Absolutely exciting. And, you know, if you were to say to me, um, you know, what do you wish you would have known then that, you know, looking back on it, there's no way we could have known back then what was going to happen to the biotech stock market. There was absolutely no crystal ball that would have seen that coming. But at that time, I mean, if we'd have known, we wouldn't have gone public, right? I think that's sort of a no-brainer. But given at that time, that was the right thing for the company, and I'm glad we did it. So, And for, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know, SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. So it's a company that you set up for the purpose of acquiring a company to take it public. It makes the, the path of going public easier than doing an IPO or a, a direct listing. What were some of the challenges and lessons from doing that? That, I mean, all companies can could learn from, or a lot of others. I think it's not that much different from an IPO. The difference is that it's almost like a reverse merger into a company that's established. So it's all the same challenges. We actually had a very complicated system, right? In in our case, because we were working with the SPAC and we were trying to get the the merger agreement with the SPAC. But at the same time, we were doing this in parallel. We were working on licensing our technology, which it's public. We, we licensed our technology from Bayer in Germany. So imagine trying to land two big fish at the same time, and they literally have to land almost simultaneously in order for us to close. So let me tell you, it was an absolute roller coaster, nail-biting experience, but we stuck with it. And I think what was important is that all three sides were interested in making it happen. Mm. So whenever, when all three sides are interested in making it happen, it will happen. It's just, you know, you got to stick, you got to stick to it and see it all the way through. Staying focused. The, I'm curious, did COVID make it easier or do you think it's starting to make it easier for companies to take products to market in the biotech and in the, um, the pharma space? Well, I can tell you it was not easy when we were trying to do this, even with COVID. What I, what, I, what I mean by that is that it seemed like we were able to produce these COVID drugs faster than any other drug in history. Has that changed the overall process for other things or is the process still as bad as it was? It is, I. I think it's so interesting that you brought up COVID because I think one of the most amazing things to me is how incredible that process was, the science that literally helped us save the world, and but it was in a detriment to everything mm. else. So I know specifically companies that were trying to manufacture biologic drugs that were short on filters because they were all going to the COVID vaccine production. And they were trying to make drugs for their own. And that's just one example. Then it was the pressure, like trying to run clinical trials, almost impossible because of all the regulations on trying to get patients in. And so, I mean, so the slowdown in our industry, both from suppliers, vendors that we worked with, trying to get patients in, has been felt a shockwave. I mean, we're only just now coming out of it and it's 2023. Mm, that makes sense. So You've mentioned kind of just slightly in passing that that you've done a couple of businesses with this CEO who's a, a doctor, I think you said. 
Yes. So is that how this works, that you have a, a physician and a business person that kind of merge to make these things happen or? Right. So the thing that with, so Ahmed and I just started working together many years ago, uh, I think the first company we actually really met at was PDL. And then he he went on to become the CMO. He was the chief medical officer at Pharmacyclics, where he hired me to help him with clinical development. The, one of the reasons that we work so well, I think, is because I'm the scientist and he's the physician. And both of those subjects are really, really important for the development of drugs. You got to have the scientific rationale for what you're doing and then also the medical rationale because you're putting this in the people, right? So I think that's one of the reasons that that, that partnership works really well. The other reason is, you know, when you work with somebody long enough, you develop, you know, communication styles, the respect and so on and so forth that you need to, to be able to go forward through all these roller coaster rides that I'm telling you about. And the other thing is it just very complementary skill set, very complementary skill set. Mm. Where does the scientist in you get the business skills? So that's a good question. Because it's not... It's- it's, it's not, it doesn't yeah, come in it, school. It, it's like just, you don't get... I would just, I, some of those things I think are just more innate than anything. I mean, I, I, I've never went for an, uh, an MBA. I once audited an economics class in college just out of interest. And I was like, oh my goodness, I could never do this. I just know that personally at home, I run all the finances. <laughs> so so yeah. and my husband, who's also a scientist, doesn't. So it doesn't certainly doesn't come with being a scientist. So I think it just for me, me probably it was just innate. Just innate, and then some of the like the management, the marketing, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just you just learn so over exactly. time. Or I've been come? very fortunate. I've worked at small startups and I've worked at big pharmaceutical companies. And anytime, whether it was compulsory to take the classes or whether they were offered as enrichment, I took them all. So management training, leadership courses. There was one company I worked at that had an, a, a Toastmaster group that met at lunch. I showed up for those. So any opportunity that I had to uh, enhance my soft skills, I always took it. It's interesting. You just touched on something that one of our COO Alliance members mentioned recently. And I was talking about how do we work harder and better at training the leaders and managers in our company? And they said, we just need to hire people that like to learn. And I'm like, oh, yes. like. That makes like it's just it does make it so much easier. And you yeah. were that person. You you were like a training session about X. I'll do that. Like and absolutely. Do you look for that today at all? Is that part of what you look for in others? Does that become part of your interviewing hiring model? Actually, at all? no. But maybe I'll add it to the list. You know, <laughs> it. It's it's interesting, right? Because it's so you it's you know we've heard the saying you can't push rope. If you have somebody that wants to learn, they're going to want to be better at situational leadership, coaching, delegation, because they'll just say yes to learning the Absolutely. content. And soft skills of leadership is where where we need Couldn't to go. And I I mean, I don't make it necessarily part of my interviews, but certainly as a company, Vincerex is very invested in, in our team members. And we do try to offer those opportunities when we can to our team members, because we feel it's so important. Why do you think your people follow you? Because you mentioned that as well. And then I've I've always said that a leader's core job is to grow people. And one of the things that you notice of great leaders is when people follow them to the next company. Like it's almost like the Pied Piper. What? Why do you think they follow you? What is it? I might have touched on that earlier, but I do think it's a lot of it is respect. People that work for me know that I would never ask of anyone what I'm not willing to do myself. Mm-hmm. And I used to say, I mean, you know, there's there's really frenetic moments when, you know, it's all hands on deck and everybody has to do, and everybody who works with me knows 
I will do anything that needs to get done. I'm like, what, you need someone to staple papers? I will staple those papers. You know, I it's never yeah. one of those, oh, that's way beneath me. I don't need, you know, I'm in it to get that ball across the goalpost and I will work with the entire team to get it done at any level that's needed. So I think that's one of so it's the respect that I've earned. And, and like I said, I like to lead from example. Everybody knows the hours I put in. Everybody knows that I'm dialed in no matter where I am. So I think those two things are things that people can respect. And there must be enough people out there that still feel they can learn from me because I think the other thing that people look for is a, is a leader that they can learn from because that's how they're going to grow. And that might be another reason that people still work with me. What, do you, what about the, um, the relationship with the CEO? Because I know you built a couple of companies together. What do you think makes that relationship work and that that kind of business um, dynamic yeah. work? Because it, it's it, it's got to be like a, a personal marriage, right? There's got to oh. be ups and downs through absolutely, and, and it's even more that that he's he's Egyptian, and I'm Colombian. So those are two very volatile personalities, but we have a lot of respect, and so I think that the reason it works is we're willing to, and we, I mean, I think in front of the team, it probably looks like we argue, but it's testing each other, pushing each other so that we come up with the best solution. But at the end of the day, there's only one captain to the ship. And so I think one of the reasons that Ackman and I work so well together is he's the CEO. I'm second in command. I will voice my opinions. He will hear them. He will take them into consideration. But once he makes a decision, I may not have agreed with that decision. But as long as we've reached consensus on the decision, which is very important consensus, meaning you might not agree with it, but it doesn't violate your moral or ethics. He knows that I will immediately get in line and that decision will be executed on. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, that's critical because you actually the trust gets so high that you can both stay in your own swim lanes and you can both just run a lot faster that way as well. I agree. Some of the biggest highs and lows of, of your role, biggest highs and lows of building this company over the last two years? So when we, uh, you know, obviously high, we get funded. We start out, we're doing great. Absolute low market crashes. <laughs> Absolute high. The people we work with are amazing. We have an incredible team. We have an incredible platform. Our science is beautiful and elegant. And we're executing. We've managed to file two INDs unless so investigational new drug applications. Those are the applications you file to the FDA so you can actually start clinical trials on these really innovative drugs. Two of those filed in less than a year. And so I'm very excited about that. We're just starting to put these drugs into patients and this is where the magic happens. So I'm looking forward to the next few years as these drugs go through clinical trials. How about some of the struggles? The struggles... The market crashed and we, you know, we, yeah, yeah, walk us through we that. What, do, what happened? Yeah. What happens? We had to do a reduction in force and that was very difficult. And that was one of the most painful moments of my life. And the reason being, because like I said, a lot of people had worked with me at a lot of other companies before. Right. So that's very painful. Yeah. For myself, for Ahmed, and we sat there and, you know, we just looked across the table at each other and we said, we have to save the company and it's important to reduce our spend. That's the way that we're going to be able to get this company to the point where we are today, where we're filing these investigational new drug applications and starting clinical trials. And then we had to conserve cash. And to do that, we had to reduce. And that was difficult. But the other thing I said, 
as we looked across the table, I said, you know, if we're not willing to make these hard decisions when they have to be made, then we have no right to be in these roles. So mm-hmm. it's the challenge of the role, but it's the one you have to be willing to accept. Otherwise, you should not do this. Well, how many employees did you have before that reduction in force? And how many did you have Yeah, to let so go? it was about a third of our force that we had to let go. Yeah, that's painful for sure. And as you mentioned, some of them are, are some of the, um, the the people that you worked with in the past as well. When you did that, were there some lessons that you learned from from having to do that reduction in force as well, like the whole cut deep, cut once, and how to get through it, and how to manage the fallout and the the, the worry and you know survivor guilt and all that. Yeah, stuff? absolutely. All of those things that you just said is what you go through. Um, we're still here, and that was so. It was had to be done. We have not had any reductions in force since then, and we hope not to. And now we're in a in a position, like I said, we filed two IMDs, and now we we get these drugs into patients and get ready to to show how wonderful hopefully our data is going to be as we go forward. What's the distraction like running a public company versus being able to stay focused on the day to day, or is it just is it just part of the day to day now? One of the things that I think is kind of funny is once I realized or started working on these SEC filings, they were absolutely mind-numbing. And so the joke with my general counsel between me and him is that he was like, I said to him, I would have, I'd rather have another C-section than do another one of these. But it's part of the job. You just do it. You get used to doing them. I have we have a great team. They they do a lot of a lot of that heavy lifting now that we're this deep into the company and it allows me to focus on other things, which is the program, you know, basically the program leader for these drugs. So I'm the one kind of steering the ship to getting these submissions in. So, I mean, it's great that we have the wonderful team that I have that I can rely on to get a lot of that other stuff done. Yeah, focus on the key stuff. So I know a lot of employees, when they join um, a public company, they're joining with the excitement of options and, you know, some upside. And then all of a sudden the market crashes and their options are like, well, shit, that's going to take some time to get back to. How do you how do you keep the employees focused on what matters and try to disconnect them a little bit from that? the market conditions? I think that you hit on that key point on that already at the beginning of this interview, which is that what we're trying to do is get drugs to patients that are going to make a difference. And when that is your number one reason, that is my reason for getting out of bed every morning. I know that that's the way the rest of my team feels as well. And when that is your priority, the rest of the stuff is just noise. It is completely just noise. It's hard to remember that, hard to keep people focused on that at times. But yeah, it is at times just noise. All right. So you were a leader or engaged in growing as a leader when you were with these companies that were offering up the the training and offering up the learning. How do you continue to grow as a leader today? I think a big part of it is start a new company from scratch and go public. (laughs) I mean, it's now I'm just living it. So I think at this level, I've not been at this level before. And so I'm learning a lot, especially from the public side. So this is what I call hands-on training. Um, but absolutely, as I mentioned earlier, our company does offer executive coaching and other things to continue for us to continue to grow. So, are there any areas that you're specifically working on? Any things that are like a specific skill that you can actually name or call out, or an area that that something you're trying to work on or develop? Yes, I think that we're doing it right now. <laughs> I've always been very happy being second in command behind the scenes, letting Ackman be the front man and be out there. And uh, so now uh, this is my time to start to get out there as well. And so I'm, I'm learning. This is a learning experience. And this is definitely a big growth experience for me as well. 
Yeah, it's interesting how of our of all of our members in the COO Alliance, and we've got members from 17 countries that all play that second in command role. I'd say about 25 or 30 percent of them are are outward facing business development, sales, marketing, you know, talking, speaking with, and then the other 80% are very like inward facing, you know, uh, process, engineering, operations. In fact, when I was the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I was a very outward facing COO, right? It was, it was grow, it was recruiting, it was marketing. Um, and their new COO, who's taken them from the 100 million when I left to 450 million now in the last 10 years, he's never spoken to the media. He's never done a stage interview. He's really very inward facing. So there's just a, even though it's the same company, the stage that they were at required something different. Does it feel awkward to you? Cause you come off quite natural and excited and. Yeah, it's very awkward for me. I, but like I said, I see this as a growth opportunity. My team, when they proposed that I should do this, I was at first no, but there's a lot of women in my company and they absolutely encouraged me to do this because I am female. They said, you know, it would be really great to see you out there so that you can inspire other women. And that's, that kind of hit my cord. And I said, okay, <laughs> I, I, I totally right. understand that. And so I will do this. It's out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to do that. And maybe if I do it enough, I'll get comfortable doing it someday. That's the growth part. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. And I, I don't know if it's only because it's 2023 or if it's just the the era that we are now in with business. 40% of our CO Alliance members are women. You know, we're our minimum qualifying size is 5 million in funding or 5 million in revenue. Our average size company is about 40 million. But when 40% of our members globally are are women in the second in command role, and then if you think about like who is the the kind of who was at the pinnacle of a second in command, it was Sheryl Sandberg, like being COO at Facebook for 15 years. I think there's something about this COO role where women are are excelling, and I'm glad you're you're, you're a voice. And, and I would I don't know what, what percentage of our guests. I'll bet you are in about the 35 to 40 percent of our guests are are women as well. Great, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, you're leading the way, but you're certainly um, you're certainly there with everybody else that's solid as well. So I'm glad you're doing it, and you're good at it. Keep doing it, and you've got the the doctor of <laughs> philosophy behind you. Well. And what was the subject matter, by the way? What was your PhD in? Microbiology and immunology from UCLA. Microbiology and immunology. Okay. I was going to school with a guy. I, I went to the only university that accepted me in Ottawa, Canada. And he was doing his PhD, as he put it, in ice. I'm like, in ice? Like, in <laughs> really? And it like wasn't an ice. acronym. It really was ice. <laughs> yeah. It was like literally something about glacial ice or something. I'm like, oh, good luck with you. I don't know what you. Well, do it's with probably that. doing well now with the global warming situation. Yeah, I, I'm sure, right? I'd be really mountains. curious to, to see what he's doing. He's probably doing something that is pretty cool. Uh, joke's on me. All right, I want you to go back and give the 21, 22-year-old Raquel Azumi some advice. And were you still in Columbia, by the way? I'm going to Columbia for the first time in September. I'm super excited. Oh, you, you know what? After this, we should talk because I have a lot of family yeah. there and I can definitely give you some really important advice that you're going to want. Thank you. So we'll yeah, be in touch yeah. after this. <laughs> were you still in Columbia when you were 21, 22? No. So the story there is uh, I was actually born here in the United States because okay. my mom uh, had come to visit her sister in San Francisco while she was pregnant with me. And she stayed until I was born. Uh, so that I could get my U.S. citizenship. So then she went back home to my my dad, my biological father. Unfortunately, that marriage didn't work and they divorced when I was five. So mm. from the age of five on, I came back to the States. Mom remarried and I was raised by my stepfather who, um, who raised me. 
And that's why my last name is easy to me uh, because he adopted me and gave him, gave me his name. So yeah, 20, I was here in the States. All right. So let's give the 21 year old Raquel some advice. What advice would you like to have known at 21 that you know to be true today? Oh my gosh, that's always a tough question. I would say, and I probably believe in my, that's not even true. That's a, that's a tough question. There's, it's just, there's so much that's gone in my life. I guess I would just say, no matter how hard it gets, it's going to be fine. Just get up and keep going. No matter, because it's going to get hard. (laughs) Like at 21, I had it good. (laughs) Right? Yeah. 21, we all had it good. Yeah, no, it was good. No matter how hard it gets, don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. I love it. Gone. Just keep going. Raquel Azumi, the COO for Vinsurex. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Very appreciative of your time today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.